Making Space, a podcast about the unique ways that theme parks tell stories. In this episode, I'll introduce the most unique way that theme parks tell stories. Once upon a time, in the far-off land of language arts class, there was an audience. This audience wanted to hear a story, so the author introduced them to a character who is called the narrator. The narrator explained the story to the audience. The narrator also explained how qualified they were to tell the story by using one of three different narrative perspectives. There's first-person perspective, in which the narrator uses first-person pronouns like I, me, mine, we, and ours. This implies that the narrator was personally involved in the story, that theirs is a first-hand account, that they're a direct source. Then there's second-person perspective, in which the author uses second-person pronouns like you and yours. This implies that we, the people in the audience, are also the narrators. The story isn't about some random character, it's about us. Last but not least, there's third-person perspective in which the narrator uses third-person pronouns, like she, hers, he, his, they, and theirs. This implies that the narrator wasn't involved in the story, but they do know what happened well enough to be objective about it. But alas, all was not well in the far-off land of language arts class, for the three narrators were not created equal. First person was popular enough to be used in classics like Cat's Cradle, The Great Gatsby, and Jane Eyre, and third person was popular enough to be used in classics like Pride and Prejudice, The Old Man in the Sea, and Harry Potter, but second person? You had to search for second person. You had to settle for choose-your-own-adventure books, or instruction manuals, or greeting cards, or the lyrics to love songs if you wanted second person. Fortunately, that was long ago in a far-off land. Things have changed. If we want a story told from second-person perspective, there are plenty of places to find one. But the most spectacular second-person art form of all is the theme park. When a theme park tells a story, it's about us. Yes, that's right, us. Not Superman or Anna Karenina or any other character, just regular old you and me and everyone else who exists in real life. We're not just an audience observing the story, we're also the narrators experiencing what happens firsthand. Why should we settle for just listening to a ghost story when we could visit a haunted mansion in person? Okay, so theme parks tell second-person stories. So what? Plenty of other art forms do, too. There are video games and role-playing games which insert us directly into the story and let us change what happens. We can rescue a princess, or solve a puzzle, or spend ten hours filling out a character sheet and then die in a random encounter with a level one gelatinous cube. There's museums and zoos, which tell us stories about what happens when we learn something through first-hand experience. We can use artifacts to imagine what it was like to be an Aztec, or quote-unquote encounter animals in the quote-unquote wild, or touch that glass ball thingy that has that, like, purple electricity stuff inside of it, you know the one I'm talking about? Even stately art forms like architecture and landscaping, which we don't think of as narrative, do indeed tell second-person stories by manipulating how we behave in different locations. Buildings and plants not only dictate our surroundings, but also how much space we have to move around, which routes we take when we're passing through, and where we're most likely to linger. What makes the theme park different? 
Simple. It doesn't just tell a single story from second-person perspective, it tells three stories from all three of the perspectives. This is called triple perspective storytelling, and if you're not confused about how an audience can possibly follow three different stories from three different perspectives, all told in the same place and at the same time, then I have failed to convey how jaw-droppingly elegant this structure is. So let's walk through it, level by level, one story at a time. First, we'll consider how the perspectives work in traditional art forms like movies and books and comics, and then we'll consider how they work in theme parks. We'll start with third-person perspective, since that's the most common, and then we'll work our way down to second and first. So remember, in third-person perspective, the narrator is not personally involved in the story, but they do know what happens well enough to be objective about it. This perspective could not be more detached from us. Someone else is the storyteller, and someone else is the narrator, and someone else is the protagonist. So what's our role in a third-person story? Pretty much nothing. All we get to do is observe. We're just the audience. No wonder this perspective is so popular in art forms like movies and TV shows and plays and books and newspapers and poetry and blogs and comics and paintings and songs and podcasts. None of them are designed to play along with us. They're all designed to lecture us. They display the story at us, on a stage or a screen or a page or a canvas, and nothing we do can change that story. Honestly, it's kind of antisocial, like a one-way conversation. Even if we climb up onto the stage to stop Romeo and Juliet from committing suicide, those two crazy kids will still go through with it once we've been kicked out of the theater. What a way to treat an audience. But it all works out because third-person stories are also designed to make it up to us. While they're blathering on, telling yet another of their countless stories about people and places and events that don't involve us, they're actually using theme to manipulate us into believing that the story is, in fact, about us. For example, on some level, The Little Mermaid couldn't be less relevant. It's about an imaginary person who lives in an imaginary kingdom and decides to use imaginary magic to change her imaginary species, but we don't think of it that way because the story rephrases it as something relatable. It says, never mind all that magic stuff, The Little Mermaid is really about a kid who's rebelling against petty authority. We've all been there, so instead of alienating us, the story makes us feel validated. Theme parks don't have to bend over backwards like this. They don't have to tell third-person stories at all, because unlike movies and books and comics, they are designed to play along with us. They literally put us in the story. Who wants to observe other people doing cool stuff when we can observe it and experience it for ourselves? That's why, instead of telling us a story about other people and then persuading us that it's actually a story about ourselves, theme parks tell us a story about other people to distract us from thinking too much to enjoy the story about ourselves. Third-person stories are an ideal decoy because they're designed to literally keep us sidetracked. First, we find a vantage point that's somewhere safely off to the side. Then, the third-person story focuses us on a single spot, like a stage or a screen or a page or a canvas, and the storyteller, along with the narrator and the protagonist and the rest of the cast, take care of everything else, absolving us of all responsibility. Once we're concentrating on them, we stop fretting about ourselves. It's one of the few times where we don't have to worry about how we're behaving or what's happening to us. It's a little bit like guided meditation, really. When we're focused on the third-person characters, the theme park has greater control over how we behave and react to the second-person story. For example, let's consider Thunder Mountain. 
At its core, it's just a roller coaster, and the roller coaster tells a second-person story because it happens to us. But instead of just plopping us on a roller coaster, the designers have dressed the ride up to look like a mine train. This isn't a vehicle that was specifically designed to take us around a track. It's a runaway railroad through a mountain range full of settlers who are striving for fortune and love and survival. And so what if our experience just so happens to be exactly like riding a roller coaster? There are more urgent matters to attend to. There's a T-Rex fossil intimidating us. Loose boulders could fall on us. A goat is chewing a stick of dynamite. The third-person story works its magic, reassuring us that we're just the audience, safe and sound, behind the fourth wall, but of course, that's a lie. While we're lulled into being an audience, the second-person story gives us a fun experience. The perspectives work together to give us the spectacle of a movie with the intimacy of a roller coaster. Alright, so in third-person perspective, we are nothing but the audience, but in second-person perspective, we're much more involved. We're not just characters in the story, and we're not just the narrators, we're also the protagonists. That's the chief appeal of second-person storytelling. After all, humans are solipsistic. On some subconscious level, every single one of us already believes that we are the protagonist of a story, and that our story is THE story, and that every single other person in the history of the world is really just one of our supporting characters. Traditional art forms, like poems and books and comics, convey their stories through characters and dialogue, so when they try to use second-person perspective, they're literally telling us what to do. For example, if a story begins by saying, You woke up this morning and drank orange juice, we'll either say, No, I didn't, so now I'm skeptical of everything else in the story, or we'll say, How did they know I drank orange juice this morning? Burn the witch. We're a tough crowd. We don't mean to be, it's just we don't like being bossed around, especially by a story that we're trying to enjoy in our free time. As we've discussed, traditional art forms like poems and books and comics are designed to display the story at us. That's why most of the second-person stories that they tell are literally lectures. Here's a recipe which tells the story of how you will bake ciabatta. Here's a manual which tells the story of how you will assemble this bookcase. Here's a greeting card, which tells the story of how grateful I am that the Hallmark Company wrote how grateful they are to have you as a grandson. Theme parks, on the other hand, are not driven by dialogue. They can't rely upon characters to spell out what's happening or give us commands. No, theme parks are driven by locations. They tell us where we are and what we're doing by hinting at it with urban planning. Most of their actual storytelling is therefore performed subconsciously. When they manipulate us, it feels less like a lecture and more like an event that's happening to us. For example, in The Haunted Mansion, the spookier scenes are grouped together in the first half of the ride, and the sillier scenes are grouped together in the second half. Most riders don't even notice that, but if they do, it feels like happenstance. It's just the way the rooms are laid out. But remember, even though The Haunted Mansion feels like a building full of tragic history and partying ghosts, it's all fictional. It was built in 1969 for the sole purpose of entertaining us. The storytellers wanted us to arc from frightened to happy. And instead of declaring, you feel frightened, now you feel happy, they designed the scenes by tone and arranged them in an order that makes us more likely to react the way that they wanted. Which is easier said than done. Telling a second-person story in a theme park is still really tricky because, well, imagine trying to tell a story where you can't control your own protagonist. You can influence them, but you can't control them. 
For example, if the sillier scenes at the end of the haunted mansion don't lift our spirits, pun intended, and we walk out of the ride feeling frightened, the ride can't make it all better by saying, you live happily ever after the end. No, the ride has to plan against that possibility. When a theme park designs a second-person story, every single choice must anticipate how every single one of us will react to it. If our reaction doesn't match the experience that the theme park is trying to give us, then it's the wrong choice. That's why, for example, the ghosts who climb into our doom buggies are adorable instead of, say, the Black Widow Bride or the gruesome disembodied heads in the attic. Imagine one of them following you home. The other challenge of treating every single person in the audience as a protagonist is that, well, that's a lot of protagonists. Imagine trying to tell a story that's not about a character, but rather about every single person who has ever heard or might ever hear your story. A million potential protagonists, most of whom you'll never get to meet, each with their own personality, behaviors, likes, and dislikes, and your one story has to be just as satisfying and personal to each of them. For example, here's a common second-person story that roller coasters tell. The conflict is that we want to enjoy the thrills, but we're afraid we may get hurt. The plot is that as we walk up, we get a big and loud and intimidating sightline of the roller coaster. We build up the courage, and we ride it. We enjoy the thrills, unharmed and victorious. The end. That's a story about using bravery and perseverance to overcome adversity. Plenty of other art forms have told the same story. Uh, for example, it's the gist of the movie Rocky. But the difference is, it takes Rocky two hours of screen time to make us feel something vicarious that we can feel directly in just three minutes on a roller coaster. It's hard to overstate how affecting this perspective is. A roller coaster can tell a second-person story that makes the audience feel as if they've experienced a sacred rite of passage just 20 feet away from a corndog stand. The coaster tells other stories, too. Perhaps when I ride it, when I'm the protagonist, the conflict is that I want nonstop thrills, but I've been on so many roller coasters that I've become desensitized. You and I could be on the same ride at the same time while sitting in the same row, and our stories could, and probably would, be completely different. Talk about getting more bang for your buck. All the storytellers had to do was produce a mechanism that does one simple thing, send a train in a loop around a track, but every single time it does that, it creates a brand new, intensely personal story for every single person on board. Second-person perspective is remarkable because the storyteller only needs to tell half of the story. They set up the circumstances that we will encounter. Uh, we're in a boat surrounded by pirates. We're in a treehouse ogling a stranger's room. We're in a time machine surveying the history of human communication. Then the storyteller completes the story, not by telling us what happens, but by asking us, what will you do? Will you hide from the pirates the whole time, or will you be singing along with them by the end? Will you pass straight through the treehouse, or will you linger and imagine what it would be like to live here? Will you learn about how humans have communicated through the ages, or will you watch a cartoon about how the future will be like the Jetsons? In second-person perspective, the storyteller sets up the circumstances, and we pay them off with our reactions. Instead of reciting the story at us like a lecture, the theme park makes space for us to play along as the storytellers. The more text that the theme park leaves blank, the more we get to fill in for ourselves. Finally, there's first-person perspective, in which the narrator personally experiences the story firsthand. 
Traditional art forms, like movies and books and poems, tell first-person stories in the exact same way that they tell third-person stories. We're still observing someone else playing the storyteller, and someone else playing the narrator, and someone else playing the protagonist, and a bunch of other people playing the rest of the cast, while we are still firmly confined to the audience. The only difference is that now the narrator uses first-person pronouns instead of third. But what about a true first-person story? What about a story where we are the audience, and the protagonist, and the narrator, and the storyteller? Well, that's real life. I know, this sounds kooky, we're not used to thinking of our everyday experiences as stories, but remember, a story is the chronicle of someone who wants something badly but has trouble getting it, and if you search through your own memories for examples of that, you'll realize that your life does indeed qualify as a collection of stories. They're non-fiction, and usually mundane, but they count. For example, see if this first-person story sounds familiar. The conflict is that you want dinner, but you don't have it. The plot is that you're hungry, you get some food, you eat till you're full, the end. As a story, it's not exactly Shakespeare, but as an experience, it's captivating. It affects you as intimately as a story can. You feel it so deeply that it forces you to introspect, asking yourself questions that you and only you can answer, like, how hungry are you? Is there anything you're especially craving? Do you really want tacos three days in a row? What's more, when you eat that food, you're not only tasting it, you're also feeling relieved that you're no longer hungry. The story adds flavor to the meal, making it far tastier than it would have been. That's quite a superpower. Imagine if we could harness that and use first-person stories to improve everything in our lives. Unfortunately, that high is not only subconscious, but also fleeting. As soon as the experience ends, there's no reason to linger on it. You were hungry, so you ate, and now you're fine? Cool story, bro. Sure, some of our first-person stories are worth remembering, but they can be rare. There are only so many times you can lose your third-grade spelling bee, or have your first child, or get jealous when your first child wins their third-grade spelling bee. We are so addicted to the kind of first-person stories that make our lives more interesting that, well, that's why we invented art, and holidays, and sports, and hobbies, and vacations abroad. The entirety of human culture exists just to punch up the pros of our day-to-day -day lives. So how do theme parks tell first-person stories? Well, strictly speaking, they don't. The only person who can tell a first-person story about you is you. That said, theme parks do manipulate us into telling first-person stories by persuading us to play along. They offer us places to visit, activities to do, stuff to buy, which gives us the option to decide, hey, I want to visit the park today, or I can't wait to go on that ride, or that hat is the stupidest thing I've ever seen, where can I buy one? In theme parks, first-person stories are symbiotic with second-person stories, so telling them apart can be a little confusing. Remember, in both perspectives, we are the audience and the narrators and the protagonists, so the only difference is whether or not we are the storytellers. In the second-person story, the theme park is in charge. It has designed its lands and rides and uniforms and food and merchandise and infrastructure, all in anticipation of what we might like to do. Meanwhile, in the first-person story, we are in charge. We personalize our visit by reacting to the park. We choose where we want to go and what we want to do. The park gives us stimuli to react to, but our behaviors and thoughts and feelings and, ultimately, our memories come exclusively from us. For example, if we walk into Hollywood Studios and say, hey, let's go on the ride that drops people down an elevator shaft, 
we are taking action, so it's part of the first-person story. When we pass through the queue and the spooky setting warns us that we shouldn't be here, the ride is taking action, so that's part of the second-person story. When we decide to press on through the queue, that's part of the first-person story. When we're strapped in and the ride drops us down an elevator shaft, that's part of the second-person story, but all of our reactions to being dropped down an elevator shaft are part of the first-person story, and so on. Delineating between the perspectives can be murky, but I promise it's not just me being semantic, it's the whole appeal of triple-perspective storytelling. The third-person story distracts us from thinking too much to enjoy the second-person story, Meanwhile, the second-person story manufactures an experience which is so fun that we mistake it for the sort of interesting first-person story that we wish we had in real life. If you're feeling a little overwhelmed at this point, don't worry. We're thinking about a lot of familiar subjects in some rather unfamiliar ways. It takes a while to get the hang of triple-perspective storytelling, because it's not fiction, and it's not reality, it's fiction-tinged reality. Even though the structure itself can be complicated, its individual components are simple. Let's get a little bit cozier with how triple perspective storytelling works by analyzing a classic ride, The Haunted Mansion. Before we start, though, if you've never been on The Haunted Mansion but you want to at least see what we're going to analyze, don't worry. You can find videos of it and pretty much every other ride on the internet. I'd also like to add that if you've never been on The Haunted Mansion, wow. I'm sorry, I, I, I hope that changes, but also, how did you find this show? Why have you listened this long? Well, however you got here, welcome, I'm glad you came. Let's analyze The Haunted Mansion, shall we? So once again, we'll start with third person, then second, and finish with first. Remember that the third person story is not about us, it's about the characters in the ride. Ask yourself, who are the characters in the ride? What do they want badly, and why are they having trouble getting it? The characters in the ride are, of course, the ghosts. They want us to move in, which is revealed when the ghost host explains that they have 999 happy haunts here, but there's room for a thousand. Any volunteers? They're having trouble getting us to move in because we can't live there, or is it after live there, until we're dead, and we're, you know, reluctant to die. So that's the conflict. Now here's the plot. It begins by expositing that the ghosts want to liven things up, pun intended, with a little new blood, pun intended. They hold an open house, hoping that a tour will convince us to move in. The ghost host leads us around, contextualizing the mansion as we go. The plot culminates when the ghost host is called away, leaving us to wander by ourselves, and leaving us at the mercy of his housemates, who knows how they'll treat us. The plot resolves when we complete the tour. As we exit, the ghosts encourage us to move in as soon as we die, singing, If you would like to join our jamboree, there's a simple rule that's compulsory. Mortals pay a token fee. Here, you can rest in peace because the haunting's free, so hurry back, we would like your company. Isn't that lovely? The story confronts us with death, but then reassures us that it isn't so bad. It's a retirement home where you spend eternity goofing around with your loved ones and having fun in Disneyland. What's more, this depiction of the afterlife is not a myth. It actually exists, and we visited it, and we're invited to return. All we have to do is bring the proper paperwork, i.e. our, you know, death certificates. Uh, the ghosts may be our antagonists, and they are technically rooting for us to die, but there's no animosity. They adore us. They want to live with us. Sorry, make that after live with us. 
Okay, so that is the third-person story. Now let's take a look at the second-person story. Remember, that's about us. We are the protagonists. Ask yourself, when we're in the ride, what do we want, and why are we having trouble getting it? The answer is plain and simple. We want to tour through the mansion, but we're afraid that the ghosts will harm us. That's the conflict. Now here's the plot. It begins by expositing that we are surrounded by ghosts, but we can't see any of them. Sure, we can hear the ghost host, and there's a floating candelabra, and a bolt of lightning reveals the shadow of a ghost who's playing the piano, but we don't know how many ghosts are around us, or how close they are to us, or what they intend to do to us. The plot culminates when we hang around so long that the ghosts get comfortable with us. The happy haunts have received your sympathetic vibrations, the ghost host explains, and they're beginning to materialize. And sure enough, they start to appear in larger numbers while drawing ever closer. First, we watch a ballroom full of ghosts on the floor beneath us. Then we cram into an attic where the ghost of a black widow bride gets right up next to us to brag about her murders. And then we're in a cemetery where we're surrounded on all sides by a graveyard jamboree. The plot resolves when the ghosts get so comfortable with us that they not only enter our vehicle, sitting beside us or maybe even inside us, but they also follow us home. <laughs> Isn't that clever? It's a story about how we're not used to being characters in a story. We get on the ride because we want to see something spooky, just like we do if we watch a horror movie, but because this is a ride, it blurs the line between fiction and reality. You want to observe hauntings, it asks? Well, guess what? Now you're going to experience them too. So that's the second person story. Last but not least, there's the first person story, which is impossible to set in stone because every single one of us experiences our very own version of it. That said, we're all reacting to the same stimuli, so here are the very, very broad strokes that our first-person stories have in common. We are each the protagonist, our objectives depend upon whether or not we want to go on the ride, our antagonism is completely variable. So, for example, you might want to visit some silly spooks, but you're not sure if it's worth an hour-long wait. Someone else might be too scared to go on the ride, but their mom is peer-pressuring them into it. I might be ambivalent about riding at all, but I really like organ music and I hope to hear more of it inside. Every conflict is valid. Now here's the plot. It begins by expositing that, yes, the location is a haunted mansion, so we know exactly what kind of story to expect. That said, even though the style is ominous, the subtext treats us warmly. The gates are open, the servants greet us, and our host has even prepared an iambic monologue for us as he shows us around. The ride reassures us that sure, this is a foreboding location, but don't worry, it's just an open house. The tour will be like any other. The regulars will ignore us and go about their business while we observe them safe and sound behind the fourth wall. In short, the ride lures us in by treating us like the audience of a horror story. The plot culminates when the ride reminds us how vulnerable we are. The ghosts never attack us, but they do troll us, making portraits age and galleries stretch, and rooms that are advertised as having no windows and no doors suddenly have both windows and doors. Before long, their trolling turns into threats. Oh, by the way, we're looking to fill the thousandth vacancy. Oh, by the way, I'm gonna leave you to wander by yourselves through a haunted house. Oh, uh, by the way, a ghost will invade your privacy from here all the way back home for as long as you live. In short, the ride gradually treats us less like an audience and more like characters. The plot's resolution is completely variable and depends upon what our individual conflicts were. 
Was visiting the silly spooks worth the hour-long wait? Was that mom right to peer pressure her child into riding? Your version of the haunted mansion might be about how you stared death right in the eyes until you both started giggling, but my version might be about how I had to sit through a bunch of small talk before I could hear the B-side of that swanky organ music. There's no wrong answer. Every single reaction or feeling or interpretation that every single one of us has ever had on the ride ever since it opened in 1969 is automatically an official part of the Haunted Mansion's canon. We don't just perform the story, we become one of its storytellers. Isn't that extraordinary? Only a theme park can give us that much power. And since this is all presented as an experience, we feel it profoundly, yet we don't even realize we're participating. This is a narrative frontier hidden in plain sight inside each and every single one of us, and all we have to do to explore this frontier is tell three stories at the same time. We've known how to do this at least since they started designing Disneyland back in the 1950s, yet we've still barely scratched the surface of what's possible. I think that should change. Do you? If so, join me in the next episode. Before we go... This show talks a lot about how storytellers interact with their audience, so I figure maybe it would be fitting if we had a segment that's about you. Yes, that's right, you. In a moment, I am going to give you a creative prompt, just a fun little exercise to get you thinking about theme park design. Are you ready? Here goes. You are now King Imagineer. You have complete autonomy over every single theme park, no matter who owns it, throughout the entirety of the world. Congrats! Unfortunately, your power is limited to three attractions. You can remove one attraction that you dislike. You can restore one attraction that was either closed or changed. You can redesign one attraction that doesn't quite do it for you. So the prompt is, which attractions will you remove, restore, and redesign, and why? Of course, you can think about this on your own, but if you send your response to makingspacepodcast at gmail.com, then I may read it in the next episode. And if enough people respond, we can have a segment with creative prompts like this in every episode, so if you want more, play along. The deadline of the Remove, Restore, Redesign prompt is whenever I finish the next episode, so if you're listening to this and the show has a third episode... I'm sorry, but you've missed the deadline. I hope there is a next time, and that you have better luck during it. Oh, and there's one other chance for you to play along. You can subscribe, rate, and or review the show, or even just recommend it in real life, because I want everyone to appreciate the unique ways that theme parks tell stories. Also, I work really hard on this, and I'm a millennial who can't function without reassurance, so bear that in mind, let it be on your conscience. So that's it. This episode of Making Space was written, produced, and hosted by me, Ian K. My portfolio of theme park design can be seen at enkthemes.com. That's the letters enkthemes.com. If you want to get in touch, I would love to hear from you. Questions, comments, concerns, whatever you want can be addressed to makingspacepodcast at gmail.com. The logo of Making Space was designed by Rob Yeo, whose portfolio can be seen at robyeodesign.com. The music was composed by Alex Treese, whose tracks can be heard at alextreece.bandcamp.com. Shall we explode to music? 
In the next episode, we'll take a closer, less overwhelming look at how triple perspective storytelling works. I hope you'll join me, and I thank you for listening. Thank you.